Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On January 29th, 1935, a group of scientists gathered at the Harnack House on the campus of the Kaiser Wilhelm Society in Germany. They met to memorialize their colleague, chemist Fritz Haber, who died in exile one year before. This gathering was illegal. The Nazis had issued a mandate that prohibited government employees from showing public support for Haber because he was Jewish. As scientists of the Third Reich, these men were breaking the law by attending the ceremony. As the service began, physicist Max Planck gave an opening address. According to Einstein's German World by Fritz Stern, before the crowd of illegal mourners, Planck stated, Haber kept faith with us. We shall keep faith with him. Planck's words were particularly defiant of the government's orders, which had been intended to eradicate any public support for Jewish Germans. Those who knew Planck were aware of how monumental it was that he would defy the ruling powers in such a way. Though he was a brilliant scientific mind, Planck had always had something of a blind spot when it came to the injustices committed by his own country. The father of quantum physics, Planck was a man at war with himself, whose contributions to the field of physics are as significant as his controversial role within Nazi Germany. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures, a ParCast original. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing Max Planck, who founded the field of quantum mechanics and redefined our understanding of electromagnetic waves. His work laid the groundwork for Albert Einstein's theory of relativity. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. 
let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Now, back to the life of Max Planck. Max Planck is considered by many to be the father of quantum physics. He introduced the world to theoretical atomic physics, and his collaboration with Albert Einstein provided the framework for much of our understanding of atoms and electromagnetic energy. Planck was a cautious and rational man. His love of learning and knowledge was complemented by a loyalty to traditional and, on occasion, outdated theories. He spent his life trying to unlock the mysteries of the nature of the universe, based only on what evidence could be measured and observed. Unfortunately, this reliance on reason gave him a blind spot, as Planck expected the people around him to be similarly committed to evidence, rationality, and universal truth. His optimistic attitudes about human nature left Planck unable to anticipate the threats posed by the Nazi party, which came to power in his homeland, Germany, in 1933. Planck spent the final years of his life studying theoretical physics under Adolf Hitler's regime and struggled to reconcile his firm belief in pragmatism with a tide of bigotry and irrational hate that had swept through his home country. Karl Ernst Ludwig Marx Planck was born on April 23, 1858, in Holstein, Germany. His father, Johann Planck, was a lawyer, and his mother, Emma Patzig, was the daughter of an accountant. Marx, or Max, as he soon came to be known, also had grandparents who were theology professors. Well, that's a highly educated family. In that sense, young Max was always destined to pursue a career in academia. He learned at an early age about the importance of a good education. When he was nine, his father accepted a new position that required him to relocate to Munich. There, Planck enrolled in a school for gifted children called Maximilian's Gymnasium. During those years, Planck studied mechanics, astronomy, mathematics, and music. As a child, he learned of the close relationship between music and math, and he developed a passion for both. Planck became a skilled musician and mathematician. He was an accomplished piano player and was even said to have the potential to become a professional concert pianist. Planck sometimes performed at the Lutheran church he attended. As he continued his studies, Planck found that the better he came to understand math, the better a musician he became, and vice versa. As a teenager, Planck became romantically involved with a young woman named Marie Merck, she was the daughter of a Munich banker and had been friends with Planck since childhood. Even at their young age, Planck was confident that he wanted to spend his life with Marie. But as a banker's daughter, Marie came from wealth and was used to a certain standard of living. Max knew he would have to establish himself before he could afford to marry Marie and start a family. He soon discovered that finding well-paid work would be a slow, difficult process. As he finished his schooling and tried to determine which university to attend, Planck struggled to choose whether to devote his life to music or to mathematics. 
After a lot of grappling, he settled on math, inspired in part by a favorite teacher, Professor Hermann Muller, who taught mathematics at the Maximilians Gymnasium. Muller's lectures ignited a passion in Planck that would last for the rest of his life and eventually led him to enroll at the University of Munich in 1874. Early in his schooling, Planck chose to narrow his concentration further, opting to study physics. In those days, the field of theoretical physics didn't exist. Instead, students studied classical physics, or the field of physics that can be observed or tested. Classical physicists are sometimes referred to as experimental physicists because their ideas could be confirmed through repeatable experiments. Theoretical physicists, on the other hand, study concepts that have only been hypothesized, but not yet proven or observed. It's not unusual for a concept to begin in the world of theoretical physics, but then, as humanity's knowledge and understanding of the world increases, for that same concept to enter the world of experimental physics so it can be tested. During Planck's time in university, atomic theory was still in the realm of theoretical physics. Scientists were still debating whether atoms, the building blocks of all matter, even existed. There was still a lot to be discovered about the nature of atoms and the subatomic particles they were made of. However, many of the leaders of the field of physics at the time failed to recognize just how much there was to uncover. In 1874, during his first year at the University of Munich, Planck spoke with a professor, Philip von Yali, about his desire to become a physicist. Von Yali told him, in this field, almost everything is already discovered, and all that remains is to fill a few insignificant gaps. In layman's terms, the professor was saying that physics was an obsolete field, with nothing left for Max to contribute. It's an arrogant attitude, but it wasn't uncommon at the time. Despite these discouraging words, Planck was determined to pursue his passion. He cared more about the thrill of discovery than pursuing fame or recognition, and he thought he could be content working on minor physical problems in relative obscurity. While Planck studied physics, he was also learning outside the classroom. He befriended another physics student named Karl Runga, the two young men loved to debate, and Runga often challenged Planck's devout Lutheran beliefs. As Runga saw it, one cannot be both a man of science and a man of faith. Planck, however, believed that his field of study and his religion were intertwined. Physics was the study of how our universe works, and Planck believed he saw God's work in every particle. Planck also believed that a fundamental universal truth underlay all human understanding and all fields of knowledge. He'd come to this belief as a child when he'd first understood that math and music shared the principles of form, combination, and equation. While Planck sought to unlock the secrets of theoretical physics, he maintained his belief that his discoveries were one piece of a larger body of knowledge that would inform science, mathematics, religion, music, and all other fields of study. Planck was particularly fascinated with entropy, a little understood concept at that time. Entropy is the study of how heat and other forms of energy spread out to try to achieve an equal balance of heat or energy within a system. Like how a hot dish put in the freezer will heat up the air around it until eventually the dish and the freezer are all the same temperature. Right. 
Well, during Planck's time in school, scientists understood that the entropy gained by the cool object was greater than the entropy lost by the hot object. For his college thesis, Planck followed this argument to its logical conclusion, that the amount of entropy in the universe can only ever increase, and that it was impossible to decrease the total amount of universal entropy. It was a radical thought for the time. During his thesis defense, Planck realized that even his professors didn't seem to know how he reached his conclusions. According to Planck, driven by vision, broken by war, he says, None of my professors at the university had any understanding for my thesis, as I learned for a fact in my conversations with them. While Planck's thesis was advanced for the professors in his small university, it made little impact on the larger physics community. After he successfully defended his thesis in 1880, Planck accepted several unpaid positions while he struggled to establish himself as a physicist. Early in his career, Planck was content not to rock the boat. He accepted the commonly held beliefs at the time and initially rejected radical or controversial theories. This included the existence of atoms. In 1885, when he was 27, Planck wrote his theories about the nature of light and quantum science in a paper titled The Nature of Energy. He submitted his paper to a competition hosted by the University of Göttingen. And the paper received second place. That year, there was no first place prize. One might think that by this logic, Planck should have been awarded first place by default. However, a University of Göttingen professor, Wilhelm Weber, objected to the fact that Planck's theory used models that had been developed by Weber's professional rival, instead of those that Weber had developed himself. Hence, the judging committee awarding Planck the silver. It appears his second-place finish may well have been a matter of personal politics. Still, second place was a good result for an unpaid, unestablished new thinker in the world of theoretical physics. This accomplishment helped legitimize Planck so he could realistically pursue a paid job in physics. At that time, with no steady source of income, Planck still lived at home with his parents. He was in his late 20s and struggling to establish himself. He also continued to see his childhood sweetheart, Marie Merck. Marie and Max were adults now and were of an age where they could marry, but Planck was reluctant to marry a woman he was unable to financially support. Shortly, a solution presented itself when he was offered a position as an associate professor at the University of Munich. Upon taking the job, Planck proposed to Merck, and they were soon married on March 31, 1887. Through Planck's early career, he maintained his love of music, and often played the piano in his home. As his religious beliefs continued to evolve, Planck remained a committed member of the Lutheran Church. Meanwhile, Planck continued to study physics and entropy. He made a few modest discoveries, but found that an American physicist, Josiah Willard Gibbs, had beat him to publication. Through his 20s and 30s, Planck failed to present any revolutionary concepts, and it seemed that he would have a modest but forgettable career. Well, physics was a young man's game. Many of the field's greatest thinkers hit their peak early. This is partially because physicists tended to get set in their ways and beliefs as they grew older. However, Planck stood out because he always allowed himself room to accept new ideas. He maintained his open-mindedness, even as he grew older and more established. 
1887, when he was 29, Planck had accepted that atoms do, in fact, exist, and he incorporated this belief into his new work. This remained an unpopular stance, and one that Planck only adopted with great reluctance when he reviewed the evidence in favor of the existence of atoms. Planck was satisfied with the likely reality that he would never be known as a great physicist. He had no desire to change the field or revolutionize physics. Planck was motivated primarily by a love of knowledge and a devotion to meticulous study that would reveal the secrets of the universe. He mainly wanted to learn, teach, and occasionally experiment on the smaller issues that affected physicists of his time. In one such case, Planck set out to solve the mystery around the energy emitted from so-called black bodies. A black body is a hypothetical particle that absorbs and emits electromagnetic energy from all spectrums, whereas most particles only absorb and emit energy from some electromagnetic spectrums. All matter gives off energy, and the amount of energy an object generates depends on the object's setting. I like how a poker inside a fire gives off more heat energy than a cold poker. Or an object sitting under a lamp will reflect more light, a form of electromagnetic energy, than an object sitting in the dark. In addition to that energy, all objects also give off energy that can't be accounted for by external energy sources. So a black body will still give off its own energy. No matter the object's size, there are only certain specific amounts of energy a black body can give off. Uh, think of a store where every item costs exactly one dollar, no matter what you are buying, but in terms of measurable energy. And scientists at the time had no idea why that was. Planck hypothesized that the energy was being generated on an atomic level. His theories on black body energy would help lay the groundwork for later research into atomic energy, relativity, and radiation. Planck also devised a formula to measure the amount of energy these objects emitted, now known as Planck's law. He measured packets of electromagnetic energy in units he called quanta, you may recognize that as the same root word used in quantum. It's because of this discovery that Planck is considered the father of quantum theory. Most of what we understand of atomic energy stems from the discoveries Planck made. Planck developed his theories during a hectic time of his life. A year into their marriage, Planck and his new wife Marie had their first child, Carl, in 1888. Their twin girls, Emma and Greta, were born the next year in 1889. The couple's fourth child, Erwin, was born in 1893. With four small children at home, Planck didn't present his new theories regarding black body energy until December 1900. And though Planck had spent years developing these ideas, the physics community was hesitant to accept Planck's theories. Many people weren't able to follow the heady mathematical formulas. The few physicists who understood Planck's idea challenged it, but found that the numbers checked out. Still, Planck's obtuse method of writing made his theories hard for even the smartest of scientists to read and evaluate, and as a result, he had difficulty expressing and clarifying his theories for the next five years. 
Planck didn't finalize his hypothesis until 1905, and then it was only with the help of a new upstart physicist Planck had discovered and mentored, a man named Albert Einstein. By then, Planck was 47 years old and shockingly advanced in his career to introduce a new theorem. And yet, it was at this age that Planck would change the world of physics as he knew it. Coming up next, we'll explore how Planck's concepts shaped the world of physics and led to his lifelong friendship with Albert Einstein. Now, back to the story. By the early 1900s, quantum physicist Max Planck had presented new theories about black body physics and the nature of the atomic world. He didn't know it at the time, but these theories would radically change the shape of scientific understanding of physics for years to come. However, there were a few problems he encountered early on. Planck never wanted to establish a new field of physics. In fact, breaking new ground was antithetical to his own philosophy. Planck adhered strongly to a belief in pre-established concepts. At the time, this included the commonly accepted idea that large objects move according to a consistent, simple set of formulas. Quantum physics, which Planck inadvertently helped establish, uses a separate set of formulas to describe the movement of very small particles. Because atoms and subatomic particles have properties of waves, their movement can only be described using the theory of relativity. In short, quantum physics and classical physics use separate sets of rules. Planck couldn't deny the accuracy of his formulas, but he was desperate to unite his theories about atomic structure with classical physics. Although he couldn't unify the classical and quantum worlds, Planck enjoyed a new level of success when he first published his hypothesis in 1905. He was able to use his new position to recognize and mentor other physicists. In 1905, while he was working as an editor for a German physics journal called Annalen der Physik, Planck saw a paper submitted by an up-and-coming unknown patent clerk, Albert Einstein. Planck championed the publication of Einstein's paper, which built upon Planck's own theories regarding quantum mechanics. On September 26, 1905, Annalen der Physik published Albert Einstein's third paper titled On the Electrodynamics of Moving Bodies. Einstein's ideas shook the foundation of physics as the scientists of the day understood it. Planck embraced Einstein's theories, while still struggling to adhere to a more conservative understanding of the field. The two men reviewed each other's work and followed up on each other's papers. While Einstein would propose entirely new concepts, Planck would reconcile those theories to classical physics and demonstrate that maybe they weren't so radical after all. Planck was particularly excited about Einstein's work because it built upon and expanded upon his own theories about atomic structure. Thanks to Planck's theorem, Einstein was able to lay the groundwork for his eventual theory of relativity. The men became friends and collaborators, and while Einstein is today recognized as a genius, during the early years of his career, Einstein and Planck both met great resistance to their theories. Their notions were just too threatening to the establishment's understanding of physics. As Planck would later say, quote, A new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die, 
and a new generation grows up that is familiar with it. Tragedy struck in 1909 when Planck's wife, Marie, suddenly became ill. She wasn't diagnosed with a specific disease, but it was suspected she succumbed to tuberculosis. At the time, tuberculosis was the leading cause of death throughout most of the Western world, and no effective treatment had been developed yet. Marie died that same year. Planck grieved his wife for two years before he began courting her much younger niece, Marga von Hoslin. They married in 1911, when Marga was 28 and Planck was 52. Within a year of their marriage, Planck and Marga had their first and only child, Hermann. It's possible that the always pragmatic Planck married Marga not because of some great romantic love, but because Planck had four children from his first marriage and he believed they needed a mother. In addition, Planck had always maintained a close relationship with his in-laws. By remarrying within the same family, he could keep his same position within the family's social structure. While Planck strove to continue his personal life as though nothing had changed, the German nation evolved around him. In 1914, Germany entered World War I, and soon the war would bring more tragedy to Planck and his family. During the war, Planck learned a difficult lesson about the blending of politics and science. In 1914, Planck, eager to demonstrate his patriotism, signed a proclamation called the Appeal to the Cultured People of the World, which is sometimes also known as the Appeal of the 93 Intellectuals. This appeal, written by a playwright named Ludwig Fulda, asserted that Germany was fighting a defensive war. According to the proclamation, the German nation and army were innocent of any aggression against Belgium, and any statements to the contrary were vicious anti-German propaganda. The appeal of the 93 intellectuals was published on October 4, 1914. In contrast to his usual thoughtful and cautious behavior, Planck signed the document without reading it. He felt that he was making a patriotic action, and he knew and trusted many of the other scientists who had signed. Soon, it came to light that the German army had been guilty of killing many Belgian citizens, as well as destroying Belgian homes. Just two months before the publication of the Appeal of the 93 Intellectuals, the German army destroyed numerous historic manuscripts when they burned down the library at the University of Leuven. It was too late for Planck to disassociate himself from the appeal, and the fallout taught him a hard lesson. Nationalism and scientific objectivity were rarely compatible. More, his name had been linked with a petition support of German aggression. He would come to grapple with this same conflict 20 years later, during the buildup to World War II. Planck's oldest son, Karl, did not share his father's reservations about Germany's course of action. Karl was eager to serve his country, and he enlisted in the army as soon as the war broke out. In 1916, he was killed in combat at the age of 28 years old. Planck's daughter, Greta, gave birth to his first grandchild the following year. However, tragedy wasn't finished with Planck or his family, and in May 1917, just one week after giving birth, Greta died of an embolism. In two years, Max Planck had lost two children, 
and it was still less than a decade after the death of his first wife. It was around this time that he threw himself into his studies and began to cut himself off from his family. This was likely his way of processing his grief over his personal losses and his despair at the direction Germany was taking. Or maybe Planck was skilled at compartmentalization. He was, above everything, a practical man. Whatever gave him such focus, Planck spent 1917 working on founding a new independent scientific society that was dedicated solely to physics. Since 1911, the Kaiser Wilhelm Society had been an independent research facility that sought to preserve Germany's status as a world leader in scientific advancement. In 1917, Planck successfully lobbied for the society to open a new branch, the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Physics. The first director of the institute was none other than Planck's good friend and protege, Albert Einstein. Despite the turmoil of the war, Planck continued to publish new work that quantified the theorems that dictated quantum physics. In 1918, when he was 60, his work in establishing and popularizing quantum physics earned him the Nobel Prize for Physics. Planck had been considered in several prior years, but in 1918 he proved to be a particularly popular nominee. He received more nominations than any other candidate. According to the Nobel Committee for Physics, Planck was honored in recognition of the services he rendered to the advancement of physics by his discovery of energy quanta. Though he won for the year 1918, he was actually awarded in 1919. The rest of that year was far from celebratory. In November of that year, Planck's daughter Emma died in childbirth. Yet again, Planck buried one of his children. Of Planck's five children, only two lived to see the end of 1919. Erwin, his only surviving child from his first marriage, soon pursued a career in German politics with the German Defense Ministry. As Erwin matured into a young man, Planck built a friendship based on respect with his oldest son. As for his youngest child, Planck considered Hermann too unintelligent to relate to. Hmm, that's harsh. Mm-hmm. Max Planck wasn't the kind of man to force a relationship, even with his own offspring, so he focused on the son he could connect to easily. Planck and Erwin shared a love for hiking, and they bonded over the philosophical debates that they engaged in during long walks along mountain paths. Planck's friendship with Erwin deepened right at a time when he needed more social support than ever before. While he remained close with Albert Einstein, the two men found themselves increasingly at odds. Einstein was more and more troubled by the rise of German nationalism and anti-Semitism that defined the years leading up to the Nazi takeover. Whenever he voiced his concerns to Planck, however, Planck was dismissive. He trusted the German people to be just as rational and committed to evidence-based intellectualism as he was. And since Planck knew that there was no pragmatic benefit to anti-Semitism or racism, he trusted that the German people, in turn, would reject the growing tide of hate. Planck's optimism proved to be misplaced. Despite his reluctance to engage in politics, Planck occasionally made waves in Berlin. In one example, Planck delivered a keynote scientific address in Russia in 1925. His mere appearance in the communist country led some German leaders to fear that Planck supported Soviet Russia over his native Germany. It seems these leaders failed to understand the key message of Planck's address. 
During the address, Planck said, quote, There is no bond that unites the different countries of the earth with their widely divergent interests so directly and harmoniously as science. For the most part, though, Planck was disinterested in playing the political game. By the late 1920s, he was in his mid-60s and retired from scientific work. He spent his years traveling, hiking, and playing piano. After a long career, Planck's love of physics hadn't waned, and he still served as a member of the Kaiser Wilhelm Society, in addition to remaining involved with physics publications and even teaching classes at the local university. The world of international relations seemed far away from his daily concerns. That all changed in May 1930, when the president of the Kaiser Wilhelm Society, Adolf von Harnack, resigned his position. The members of the society felt that, despite his age, Max Planck was the obvious choice to take up the presidency. Planck was reluctant, but felt a strong sense of duty, so left his retirement to accept the presidency. Two years later, Albert Einstein left Germany for the last time. In December of 1932, he relocated to the United States. While Einstein and Planck maintained a friendly relationship and continued to exchange letters, Planck missed the regular face-to-face contact he'd once enjoyed with his colleague. Although Planck was the president of one of Germany's top scientific establishments, he found himself lonely. In addition to Einstein, many other leading thinkers fled Germany during the early 1930s in order to avoid the increasingly oppressive German government. Planck would soon find himself under intense pressure from the German leadership to fire or refuse to hire Jewish scientists. Planck couldn't maintain a professional distance from German politics forever. In 1933, the Nazi party took power and became involved with the Kaiser Wilhelm Society's studies and hiring practices. As he grappled with how to oppose the new regime, Max Planck and all of Germany would be changed forever. After the break, we'll discuss Planck's years under the Nazi regime. Now, back to the story. As a physicist, father, and devout Lutheran, Max Planck dedicated his life to the pursuit of knowledge as it could be determined through observable evidence. After he revolutionized the world's understanding of quantum physics by proposing a new theory about how atoms generate energy, Planck enjoyed his status as a premier physicist while trying to remain uninvolved with politics. That proved to be an impossible balance for Planck to maintain. Adolf Hitler was elected the Chancellor of Germany on January 30, 1933. Within months, Hitler instituted numerous anti-Semitic policies, including boycotts of businesses owned by Jewish people and persecution of Jewish intellectuals. On April 11, 1933, Hitler passed a law called the Law for the Restoration of Professional Civil Service, which made it illegal for Jewish people to hold government positions. Planck, then 74 years old, was still the president of the Kaiser Wilhelm Society, a position he'd held for three years. He chafed under the orders to fire his Jewish employees and was troubled to see so many of his colleagues flee the country. He was finally spurred to action on behalf of his friend, Fritz Haber. Like Planck, Haber was a physicist, but as a Jewish man, Haber suffered under the new Nazi policies. 
On April 23, 1933, Max Planck turned 75 years old. As a major figure in German society, he was unsurprised to receive a birthday card from Adolf Hitler himself. That's probably one of the perks of fame that Planck could have gone without. Mm. Planck wrote a reply, thanking the Fuhrer for his card and asking for an in-person meeting to congratulate Hitler on his successful election to the German chancellorship. Planck hoped that he could use their friendly visit to explain to Hitler the errors of his anti-Semitic policy and convince the chancellor to reconsider his harmful and bigoted qualities. It seems ridiculous to think that Hitler could be reasoned with. However, Planck lived his life as a man of reason and expected the people around him to be similarly rational. But it appeared the writing was on the wall, even if Planck didn't want to read it. On May 2nd, 1933, due primarily to the pressure he felt from the Nazi government, Planck's friend Fritz Haber resigned from his position with the Kaiser Wilhelm Society. He was soon forced to flee the country. The incident weighed heavily on Planck's mind as he prepared for his historic meeting with Hitler. Planck's 45-minute-long meeting with Adolf Hitler took place on May 16, 1933. Planck argued that it was in Germany's best interests to retain the best scientific minds of a generation, regardless of those scientists' ethnicity or religious beliefs. Given his audience, it should come as no surprise that Planck's argument was unsuccessful. After Planck made his case, Hitler replied, quote, I have nothing at all against the Jews themselves, but the Jews are all communists, and it is the latter that are my enemies. I must proceed uniformly against all Jews. Planck continued to attempt to debate the merits of equality, but soon Hitler flew into a rage. Planck listened to the Fuhrer's rant, filled with racial slurs and anti-Semitic attitudes, then left the meeting horrified at Hitler's behavior. Even after his meeting, in which Planck saw Hitler's irrationality firsthand, he continued to believe that thoughtful moderation would outweigh fascist extremism. Publicly, Planck cooperated with the Nazi government by flying a swastika flag and signing correspondence with Heil Hitler. But while he flew the flag, Planck refused to formally join the Nazi party. All the while, he held on to a faith that eventually the leaders of Germany would see reason on their own and abandon the persecution of Jewish people. Planck never saw any benefit in openly opposing the Nazi government, but he wasn't content to step back and let them enact their racist policies either. Instead, he tried to advocate for his Jewish colleagues within the system. He grew knowledgeable about any legal exemption or loophole that would allow him to continue to employ these scientists without breaking the law. Later that same year, 1933, the Nazi government submitted to Planck a list of 27 Jewish or otherwise undesirable scientists employed by the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. Planck was ordered to fire them all. Planck complied, in part. He requested exemptions for eight of the scientists whose studies would only benefit German society. Planck still seemed to not grasp that he was not dealing with a rational ideology. His petition was denied, and Planck was forced to fire all 27 employees. Worse, Planck's bad experience didn't stop him from helping the Nazi cause. 
Throughout the reign of the Third Reich, from 1933 to 1945, the Kaiser Wilhelm Society maintained a cautious working relationship with the Nazi government. The scientific breakthroughs Planck oversaw fed directly into Nazi weapons development programs. According to the Kaiser Wilhelm Society's website, their metals program developed alloys for the construction of military equipment, while the fluid dynamics facility helped develop warplanes. In return, the government provided a steady stream of corpses and human blood and tissue samples to the Kaiser Wilhelm Society's biological research divisions. In 1934, Fritz Haber, the same Jewish scientist that Planck had advocated for in his meeting with Hitler, died. The Nazi government forbade any recognition of Haber's achievements, but in defiance of their policy, Planck organized a memorial service. While Planck's defiance of the Nazi party was small and calculated, he still made enemies among German nationalists. Planck was demonized for building on Einstein's work, According to the Nazi government, relativity was a hallmark of, quote, Jewish physics, meant to be rejected by German scientists. In 1937, Planck's family heritage was subjected to an official investigation to determine if he might secretly be of Jewish heritage. Planck resigned as the director of the Kaiser Institute in protest in 1937 when he finally felt moved to formally object to Nazi involvement in his research. At this point, Planck was utterly disgusted with the Nazi party. Planck prayed the world would not fall into war for the second time in his life. His prayers went unanswered. The war years were rough on Max Planck. In 1943, bombing in Berlin damaged the roof of the house where Planck lived with his wife, Marga. Because they couldn't stay in their home in its state of disrepair, Planck and Marga relocated to a small town called Rogitz. They planned to return to Berlin and fix their house after the war was finished. That wasn't meant to be. In February of 1944, the Allies consistently bombed Berlin. Over a hundred air raids left smoking ruins where homes and businesses had stood before. It was during one of these 1944 air raids that Planck's Berlin home was destroyed. He lost all of his possessions, including his diaries and his scientific writings. Well, that wasn't the worst tragedy Planck faced during World War II. His oldest son, Erwin, wasn't as inclined as his father to quietly comply with Nazi leadership. At some point between 1942 and 1943, Erwin was recruited to join the German resistance. While the degree of Erwin's involvement with the resistance is unknown, paperwork linked him to Operation Valkyrie. Operation Valkyrie was an attempted military coup planned by the leaders of the Nazi army. Convinced that Hitler was leading Germany to ruin, the former chief of the army general staff, Colonel General Ludwig Beck, the chief of staff of the reserve army, Colonel Klaus Schenk von Stauffenberg, and numerous other military leaders plotted to kill Hitler, then seize military control of Germany. On July 20th, 1944, Stauffenberg attended a meeting with Hitler, carrying a briefcase that contained a bomb. He slid the bomb under the table, pushed it closer to Hitler's seat, then announced that he needed to take a phone call and stepped out of the room. 
Stauffenberg didn't anticipate that when he left the room, another meeting attendee would move his suitcase aside. When the bomb exploded, it killed one meeting attendee and seriously injured three others, but Hitler survived with minor injuries. We don't know how involved Erwin Planck was with the failed bombing plot, but Erwin was arrested all the same, along with 200 resistance members on suspicion of being involved with the plot. Max Planck learned of his son's arrest, but there was little he could do. The German government didn't even allow family members to attend the trials of the accused. When Erwin stood trial for his attempt, he was quickly found guilty and sentenced to death. Planck was devastated. In October of 1944, Planck wrote a letter to Hitler begging for mercy on his son's behalf. He wrote, quote, the acknowledgement for my achievements in service of our fatherland, which you, my Fuhrer, have expressed toward me in repeated and most honoring ways, makes me confident that you will lend your ear to an imploring 87-year-old as the gratitude of the German people for my life's work, which has become an everlasting intellectual wealth of Germany, I am pleading for my son's life. But Planck didn't enjoy the same standing he had in the past. Many Nazis thought the Planks were Jewish sympathizers, or even possibly Jewish themselves, and Hitler wasn't keen on sparing anyone who might have been involved in the attempt on his life. On January 23, 1945, Erwin Planck was executed. By this point, Planck had only one surviving child, Hermann, his son with his second wife, Marga. While Planck and Marga wanted to quietly grieve alone, they soon had to flee for their lives from the invading Soviet army. Although Soviet troops and American troops were supposedly on the same side, they treated captured German scientists very differently. The American army wanted to recruit the leading German thinkers for their own programs, while the Russian soldiers held captured German scientists in brutal conditions. According to Scientific American, about half of the German prisoners captured by Russian troops died during their confinement. On April 9, 1945, 87-year-old Max Planck and his wife Marga fled as Russian armies invaded Germany and marched on Rogetz, where Planck and Marga lived. Even after American troops captured Rogetz on April 13th, the surrounding area was dangerous with continued fighting. With no permanent home to stay in, Planck and Marga slept in barns as they fled across the countryside. During this time, Planck suffered from a bout of arthritis, and his pain was so severe that he almost couldn't walk. Yet Planck knew he would die if he remained in the same place for too long, so he pushed on through the pain. On May 7, 1945, Germany surrendered unconditionally. After the Allies won World War II, German citizens still feared they would be victims of violence wrought by the American and Soviet armies that roiled through Germany. Planck and Marga didn't know if they would survive an encounter with enemy soldiers. They remained hidden in the countryside. In May of 1945, a group of American soldiers arrived in Germany with an important mission, to find and rescue leading German thinkers before they could be captured by the Russian army. One GI named Gerard Kuiper 
set his sights on locating and rescuing Max Planck. Gerard Kuiper would go on to become a famous astronomer in his own right. He knew of Planck and his work, and he knew the value Planck might have to the United States. The lives of these two renowned scientists collided on May 16, 1945. That day, Kuiper found Planck and Marga staying with a dairy farmer and his family in a small hut in the country. Kuiper offered Planck and Marga safe passage to Göttingen, where Planck's extended family already lived. The Planks accepted the offer. In Göttingen, Planck received treatment for his arthritis. When he emerged from the hospital weeks later, it was into a new Germany. The war was over, and peace had returned to the country. Planck and Marga intended to live out the remainder of their days quietly in Göttingen. Yet, despite his advanced age, Planck couldn't stay away from the world of physics. He spent the year after the end of World War II re-establishing the Kaiser Wilhelm Society. By 1946, the organization was operating again, but was now named the Max Planck Society for the Advancement of the Sciences in the British Zone. The Max Planck Society still operates to this day. In the winter of 1947, Planck contracted pneumonia, He recovered, but in his weakened state, suffered a fall. Under his wife's watchful care, Planck had only begun to recover from the fall when a brain hemorrhage struck. On October 4, 1947, Max Planck died. He was 89 years old. Planck was buried in the city cemetery in Göttingen after a memorial service. Friedrich Gotargen, a Lutheran theologian, presided. Shortly after Planck's death, his lifelong friend, Albert Einstein, wrote a letter to Marga, Planck's widow. Einstein wrote of Planck, quote, His gaze was fixed on the eternal things, and yet he took an active part in all that was human. Although Max Planck was dead, his concepts and his work would live on in the field of theoretical physics. Planck's law, the Planck constant, a Planck length, and a Planck time are all physics elements that bear his name. He also lives on in the work of the Max Planck Institute, which still explores the nature of the universe today. Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode. You can find all previous episodes of Historical Figures, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Dick Schroeder. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. 